0: say that somebody has won 47 Emmys and six DuPonts. He was the president of CNN, of MSNBC, and ran
1: the, uh, he was a producer at ABC for 20 years. He produced Nightline, World News Tonight, This Week, Good Morning
0: American News. Uh, he produced Walter Cronkite, what an amazing career. Jennings, Diane Sawyer, Barbara Walters. I think this is going to be a very interesting 90 minutes. I'd like to introduce Rick Kaplan. Good
2: morning. Thank you, Paige. Normally, when uh, someone gets a wonderful introduction, like our wonderful things are said about somebody, they end by saying, This is where often the two sides, the many sides, conflict. I think Scheherazade would be hard-pressed to limit her reporting of today's stories to merely 1,001 nights. But we're going to try to bring some reason. So I'll, I'll introduce the ones who are here. Um, others will join in the course of this morning. So I'd like to introduce the founder and executive chairman of the Beirut Institute and the columnist for the National. on all the cable networks and a really respected The we're going to follow is that we're going to ask our panelists to open with a brief, relatively, statement, uh, open and, and then we'll open it up for a dialogue. You should find note cards um, at your tables, and we ask you to write down any questions that you would like to have included in our conversation, which the staff will collect throughout the session.
0: sing my name. It's Rahida Dargham. So think how lovely it is in Arabic. It gets Butcher, Rahida, Rashida, etc. But uh, it's uh, an honor actually to be serious, to be with you, Rick. And Dr. John, you have always honored me by inviting me to this wonderful conference. Thank you for that. And I have multiple plays, roles to play. I also want to express to my friend Tom Friedman, with whom mm-hmm. Relationship for over like 30 years, and, uh, and uh, yes, I do. I do think that his column is a must read. Like, I worked for you many, many times, but you don't, you, you know, you were somewhere above my performance. Uh, I, was, I was MSNBC uh, political analyst for a couple of years, but I started really with Nightline, so this is how old I am. So that's why. So I know I know everyone here is interested in what's going on uh, in uh, the Middle East. If I were to tell you about everything that's going on, I think we'll spend a full day doing so. So I cannot get into the details of the important events in Sudan, in Algeria, in Tunisia, and what's going on in Egypt. Uh, it's, it's, it's really a place where has, news goes on very much so, although it's not covered in the American media. So I think the preoccupation these days may be uh, due to that I will limit myself to three areas. Turkey and Syria, Iran, and Lebanon. And I'll be very brief and very quick if I can. As long as um, uh, the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, feels so good as he would this morning, I think we shall be confused about what uh, Trump administration's policy produced uh, in Syria uh, over the last months. So, uh, if you read the papers today, you will find out that uh, Erdogan was uh, meeting with the uh, the president of uh, Russia, Vladimir Putin, and um, they cemented each other's gains in Syria. The loser remains the the Kurds, of course. But again, we uh, wonder quite often these days what and came in Syria. As it looks, uh, in fact, to me it looks like despite all the threats to Erdogan, uh, do this, or you, you, you will not get uh, uh, anywhere, including his challenges to uh, uh, NATO, in effect, uh, he is a, Turkey is a NATO member, and yet Turkey had gone ahead and defied all the threats about the S-400, uh, which is you know whole oh, year. Uh, which means uh, which was really you know, objected to by the United States, and yet, but uh, one went ahead and insisted that he would go ahead with the purchase of the S400 uh, from Russia. And despite all that, what we hear is uh, there's lifting of sanctions. There will be no sanctions. you will be received in the White House, and uh, we hear about things um, related to the Kurds. That you know, we never promised them rose garden, uh, although really they did fight very much with us uh, on our behalf against ISIS. So I want to just leave the Turkish situation uh, for further question and answer period, but I just wanted to say, for the moment, Erdogan looks like the winner, and so does Vladimir Putin, uh, and I think also Iran is a big benefactor, has benefited tremendously from the American withdrawal from Syria former policy, I don't know what is the current policy now, the former policy was that no, the United States will not allow Iran to cement its gains in Syria uh, and we don't know what happened to that policy. I don't know if it's still active. I don't know if there is uh, uh, any easing or any, you know, bad channel understanding uh, regarding Iran's role in Syria. But let me go to Iran quickly because I really don't, I don't want threat to stand up and let me the time is up. It's a very interesting message we've been getting from Iran. Uh, As you heard, I am the founder and executive chairman of Beirut Institute, and we had a summit in Abu Dhabi last week that put together a lot of great minds from all over the world, from the United States, from Washington and New York, as well as from Russia, China, Europe, um, Middle East, including Iran. So the message that we heard was very interesting. It came in direct uh, to us uh, than one who is President Rouhani or the, or the Foreign Minister Jawad Zarif, But they think uh, the, the message is that you really need to talk to the deep state, and uh, they're proud that they are the deep state, and uh, the message is that uh, if you keep painting around in a corner, well, guess what? What you don't like now is going to get worse. So it's really a very threatening, uh, defiant message that says the effect, uh, that it will not be satisfied within its own borders, that it will go on ex- with this expansionist policy because without it, such regime does not have its raison d'être. So the message was live with it, uh, be obedient, understand that Iran, you know, Iran will be always outside its own borders, whether it's in Lebanon, whether it's in, uh, in the Yemen, in Syria, in Iraq. And uh, the reason why you regards in a corner, they're going to come back at you by ruling very hard and very openly in Iran and by, uh, by uh, some operations, such as the tankers, going against the tankers. Once again, somebody said within two weeks, actually, from now, that they plan to do such an attack, and through their own bases, uh, where their paramilitary forces are. Iran and is the only country I know in the world that demands respect and recognition its policy that uh, it, it has uh, it proclaimed its right, and I put this in, in, in quotation, to have military, uh, paramilitary forces that belong to Iran in sovereign countries. I don't know any other country that uh, requires uh, the, the world community to to, to respect uh, such a, an amazing defiance of sovereignty. So. Um, does feel that things are going to get very bad within Iran, that means that they are going to have to do something about the internal situation that is exploding and that is imploding, and therefore they need to be aggressive outside in order to rally the nationalism inside Iran. So I think there will be more operations, uh, and I think uh, we're told that we better not um, you know, underestimate the power of the revolutionary gods should you think that Several things, including, you know, we were told potential withdrawal from NPT. At which point, this is the question: the policy for the U.S. What is? What are the red lines right The uh, Trump administration should there be clearer red lines? We know only of the red line that um, that don't uh, touch American soldiers, but are there other is, there, is withdrawal from NPT a clear red line? What about further operations against uh, the? partners in the region. Quickly on Lebanon because I don't want to miss this opportunity and I would like to elaborate on this a lot a little later. Lebanon is going through a a, a transformational awakening. This is the first time that you see, I just came from Beirut and I came from that square From everywhere to go against sectarianism, against the ruling, the ruling group of they became found almost clutching each other's backs. The ruling elite, and then they will are out the withdrawal in the withdrawal, but actual uh, uh, for the government to to resign and a new arrangement to be made, not the one that is now between Prime Minister al Hariri and Hezbollah and Basile, who is the foreign minister and. Of the I know that I should end now, but I hope that you give me the opportunity to tell you more about Lebanon during the question, hours. I thank you very much.
2: There is a lot to say.
1: also a former National Council on DSR Relations alone, so it uh, all comes full circle. I want to be a little bit provocative this morning, and since I do come out of the administration at the end of last year, I can shed a little bit of light. Um, As Mona touched on, as I'm sure others will touch on during the day, the U.S. administration's objectives in the region are seemingly paradoxical right now. On the one hand, the President is looking to reduce the U.S. footprint and resources dedicated to the Looking to mitigate or manage the influence and expanding entrenchment of China, Iran, and Russia in the region. Recently, that has manifested itself in several potentially confusing policies like the withdrawal from Northeastern Syria, like the limited, aka cyber-only reaction to the attack on Abkhazia, to non-engagement in Libya, and the refusal to engage with Hezbollah-aligned or Iranian-backed components of governments like uh, parts of Lebanon disengage or not engage at all have caused the region to question the U.S.'s commitment uh, right now. But I'm going to ask us to look at it a slightly different way. The decisions leading to this assumption are all rooted in an avoidance of armed conflict. That's what you're hearing from the President's campaign commitments. You also heard this from the previous three administrations campaign commitments. What we're not used to is a President coming in and really following through with that. Usually the President comes in and sees realities on the ground and chooses Engage in conflicts he may not like when he entered office. This one is doing something slightly different, but there are indicators that still point to significant, solid, and ongoing U.S. commitment to the region in place in areas like training and capacity building, interoperability, CT and information sharing in the intel sector, trade and investment, and support for reforms initiated by the regime in good governance, in justice, and finance come across the region really positive indicators of U.S. commitment. We're just not looking at them right now when we're panicked about what this means for the future of Syria and the future role of the U.S. in the region, watching what's happening up in the northeast there. For one tangible sign of commitment, simply look to troop sizes the U.S. has on the ground, since everyone turns to security for a signal. In NATO, we've got about 35,000 troops on the ground, according to numbers that were covered by the New York Times and the Open Source this week. Out in the region, we've got, in the Gulf, Sixty-five thousand. That's not counting U.S. troops in Afghanistan or Iraq. Another tangible sign, the U.S. Uh, president advocated for the Middle East Strategic Alliance, or what many of us would call a concept of MESA, in multiple speeches at the U.N. General Assembly this year. Secretary Pompeo held a margin meeting specifically on MESA at UNGA. Uh, the National Security Council convenes meetings roughly every other week with the interagency on MESA and with partners around the region every few months. This concept is very much alive, and the push to establish this architecture with economic security and energy components is a strong indication of the U.S. intent to remain engaged and strengthen this engagement. The obstacles to Mesa, interestingly, are predominantly disagreements among regional countries themselves, not the commitment from the U.S. to this idea. In evaluating the U.S. administration's decisions in the region, it's helpful to remember that the President uh, decides about any conflict, whether based on a cost-benefit analysis. That's kind of how his brain works. So economic threats from places like China are considered far more potentially catastrophic than kinetic threats like what might be seen in, in northeastern Syria. Everything is fairly short-term. looking at an election cycle. So he's not looking at um, sort of the strategic, of long-term planning or what this might mean 20, 50, 100 years from now. He's looking more at what this means for my election uh, potential and the happiness of my military and my troops. Not cause for despair. It simply means that adaptations are necessary, and we need to kind of think about a new approaches to how to frame policy recommendations when you're speaking with this administration, whether it's for one more year or five more years. To this end, I propose a few uh, few recommendations for our discussions today and for your consideration. First, the Middle East, Europe, Asian partners, and the U.S. Uh, should proactively draft coordinated strategies for engagement in countries in turmoil or transition, like Libya. plans as specific as possible. This will prevent these transitioning countries from continuing to be affected by the competing interests of external actors. And it will encourage greater U.S. involvement when the U.S. sees this burden sharing from around the region. My second recommendation is to go ahead and follow through with the Middle East Strategic Alliance. Establish MESA take advantage of the opportunity to put in place a structure that will outlast this president, future administrations, and any executive orders, create something that will incentivize governments who are currently right now looking outside the region for political direction to come back into the Arab fold, and use MESA to achieve the collective security capabilities and resilience of the region that we're looking for, and become a powerful bloc that is a force to be reckoned with on the Third, I would say um, to the region, if you would um, think about working with us and with other partners, to develop a cadre of mid-level policymakers. This sounds really administrative and boring, but I speak from experience spending my entire career in the U.S. government in positions related to the Middle East, and as was mentioned most recently at the White House. Part of the challenge the U.S. and others have in designing and influencing strategies together with the Arab world is the lack. in the middle, all of us, cadre of experienced, trained policymakers, folks who know the art and science of collaborating with interministerials and developing coordinated, coalesced recommendations for their senior leaders that can be taken up to heads of state. So without this, it means that heads of state in the region don't always get what could be the best, sort of most thought through, most full scope policy options, and and the head of state isn't getting that from his something really mundane like this and work with all of us on it, we'd be happy to assist with building out a really professional core of policy makers for, for the future. And the last thing I would recommend is that we all devise ways in which Europe, the Arab, world, U.S., Asian partners can collaborate more specifically to counter the entrenchment of Russia, the IRGC specifically, not the Iranian people, and China in the region. Because if the international community is, is not okay with China monopolizing the world's mineral resources and bribing developing world leaders. To leveraging the country's futures, and if we're not okay to, with Russia selling weapons to anyone who will buy them with no restrictions on usage, and if we're not okay with the IRGC using violence against regional neighbors and fragile governments to prevent regional stability, then we need to be coming up with new options for that. When we go at it unilaterally or even bilaterally, we're not as strong as if we present these adversaries with agreed-upon positions. This can take many forms that we can talk about, perhaps in q and but I leave you with those thoughts, and I welcome your recommendations on any
2: And before we finally get to our conversation, I would like to introduce Tom Friedman. Thank you, Rick. It's a treat to be here this. Forces on the planet, which I call the market, Mother Nature, and Moore's Law. So uh, Mother Nature is, uh, is uh, climate change, biodiversity loss, and population growth in the developing world. If you put Mother Nature on a graph, she looks like a giant accelerating hockey stick. Uh, the market for me is globalization, but not your grandfather's globalization. There was containers on ships and planes. What's globalizing the world today is actually digital globalization, where everything's being digitized and globalized. And lastly, um, uh, Moore's Law, uh, which is technology, that the dispute and power microchips uh, keep doubling every 24 months. Put it on a graph that looks like another accelerating hogosphere. The world speed. is being reshaped today by these three interconnected accelerations, and they're all feeding off each other. So the way I like to look at it is we're actually in the middle of three climate changes at once. We're in the middle of change of the climate of the climate. Uh, we're going from what I call later. The later is officially over. Later will now be too late. So whatever you say, please save it now. That is a climate change. We're going yeah, to a change true. in the climate of globalization. We're going from an interconnected world to an interdependent world. And that's a very different world. In an interdependent world, first so of all, your friends can kill you faster than your enemies. If Greek and Italian banks had got under last night. Um, uh, John had called me and said, Tom, I'm sorry. If your rival rising. If uh, China had taken six more islands in the South China Sea last night, personally, don't tell anybody, I couldn't have cared less. Had China lost 6% growth last night, John definitely would have called me and said, this conference has to be postponed. That is a climate change. Unless we're going to, have to change in the climate of technology. Um, every company today can and therefore must censorize, that is, capture all its data around its business, then analyze that data off that data and digitize and automatize off all that data. Put that together, every business in the world is going through a climate change. We're going to three climate changes at once. What do you want when the climate changes? You want two things. You want resilience. You need to take a blow as stuff happens. Um, At the same time, you want propulsion. You want to be able to move ahead. You'll be curled up under the table with me saying, John, come out, come out. The climate change is over. So every country in the is actually looking for those two things: actually, every company and every community resilience and propulsion. Now let's bring it to the Middle East. How does this affect the region, and how does it manifest itself in the region? So um, the world was governed actually for millennia, actually by empires: uh, the Byzantine Empire, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. We know all their all their names. And it's really only in the 19th century and the 20th century, with decolonization of the end of World War One and World War Two, that we actually 192 nation states. So in 1945, we woke up and we discovered the UN with 192 countries. The 50 years between World War II and um, uh, the early uh, 21st century were a fantastic time to be a weak little state. If you were a weak little state, that was your era. Why? Well, first of all, sending you wheat, Um, uh, educating your kids at Patrice Lumumba University of Moscow or Wichita State in America. You could be Syria and Israel and fight three wars together and get your armies rebuilt basically for free all three times. Number two, climate change was very moderate. Number three, populations were under control. And number four, China was not in the World Trade Organization. So every. In the early 21st century, in the, as a result of these three accelerations, these three climate changes, the whole world around the Middle East has flipped. And what it's done is com- created a whole new set of pressures where average is over. Your ability to just be an average little country today is over. Why? First of all, the superpower competition is over right now. Yes, Russia is involved in Syria, but that's actually an anomaly. The fact is no superpower basically wants to touch you anymore because they think all they win is a bill. That's what Trump is telling you. Number two, climate change is hammering these countries, and ground zero is actually the air world. If you look at what's going on uh, on average temperatures in the region, everyone knows water is disappeared. Um, And populations have doubled uh, in a lot of these capitals now. So Mother Nature is pounding this region. Um, Third, uh, as I say, populations have have increased. Uh, And and lastly, China is in the World Trade Organization. So nobody else can be in the such pressure on states that the weakest of them are beginning to fracture. We've toppled a couple ourselves. Afghanistan and Iraq, others are blowing up just fine on their own. And the states that are blowing up first are those whose borders are primarily straight What we are seen is the weakest of these states are beginning to fracture and hemorrhage their people and create a vast movement of people on the world stage from the world of disorder trying to get into the world of order. And our hemisphere is coming from Central America, and in the hemisphere across the ocean is coming from So now it's your turn, and we'll be answering a number of your questions, and to facilitate time, I would ask our panel to be brief as you can intellectually, and you can stay in your seats. see is a great advantage being taken by Russia and Syria and Iran and ISIS because of what is perceived to be an American betrayal of the Kurds. And the questions are, where do you see this going, and can the United States ever regain the trust of should overact and one should underact. So let's let's talk about overaction. Russia won Syria. What is second prize? You know, what do they actually want? They've they, they won the opportunity not to manage um, uh, what is an utterly chaotic and fractured situation. So I'd be very careful about exaggerating. is the context of ISIS in Iraq and the context of ISIS in Syria. Uh, the war against ISIS in Iraq, paradoxically and unexpectedly, actually led to greater power sharing in Iraq, which is the central ingredient um, for Iraq stabilizing and uh, pulling together some kind of effective consensual government, Because basically, when um, presented with the, the lethal threat of produced was finally um, much more consensus uh, between Kurds, Sunnis, and Shia in Iraq. It produced a a, a better governance and the war against ISIS in Iraq turned out to be the war of national liberation for this generation of Iraqis. And out of it has come, I think, much better governance and actual power sharing. Um, The war against ISIS in Syria actually worked against power sharing uh, because basically ISIS in Syria, we gave a free hand to Russia, Iran, and Hezbollah to crush all of the rebel forces there, both the Islamist ones and the more moderate, uh, moderate and democratic ones. So by not making the distinction between uh, the war of ISIS in Iraq and the war of ISIS in Syria, um, I think we made a. actually did it for free. It was one of the, I think, biggest, and it was bipartisan. It was not just on Trump. It was a bipartisan strategic error because we got caught up. We put the war on terrorism on autopilot. The last thing I would say, um, uh, I feel terrible about the Kurds. I feel terrible about the, the shameful Certain sort of out of the nation building business, okay? Um, and, and that whole strategy of, uh, 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 of the early 21st century. But what I'm really into is amplification. Uh, where I see a decency, I want to amplify. Um, uh, and where I see decency anywhere in the region, I want to amplify. I want to amplify universities, I want to apply education. And once I want to think about the Kurds as they are and have built islands of decency. Um, and uh, I think those are precisely the forces and regions, we should be amplifying uh, and not abandoning. So uh, that's kind of how I
0: just the issue, the potential of the quagmire persists really. And probably uh, if you look at at the approval rate of Putin's war, of Putin's rule in Syria, uh, if you take a look at the figures coming from his own country, you'll see that uh, it's down to 12%, 67% or something. So uh, he really needs to have the settlement, the political settlement in Syria. And what he has Which is, of course, Russia, um, Turkey, Iran, in, in, in collaboration with the, the government or regime in, in Damascus. So, uh, yeah, it is too soon. And, and what you know, what the to, to, to say that, uh, one is really a very funny thing to say when you take a look at a country that part of it is under Turkish control, another part is under the control of Russia. from its project, the project that is referred to as uh, the crescent, uh, the, the, the passage, which takes Iran from Tehran all the way to the Mediterranean, through so Iraq, and particularly Syria. This is important. So the administration needs to think about that. Are they going to allow... Uh, Does this administration going to turn a blind eye on what Iran is doing in Syria? Okay, I could see that there is, right now, sort of not to Putin go ahead, it's yours you, you know, you want to fix it, fine but if if, if you break it and you own it, you know, I can see that this is what they are saying to Putin and that's what they're saying also to Erdogan I think this is the message to Erdogan go ahead, you know, you've got your 20 kilometers in, into the, the territories, how long do you stay it depends, you know, you, you know, we will uh, we will see if um, you know, we'll make sure that Bashar Assad sort of does not object too much, but absent in this whole debate is where is Iran and Hezbollah, of course. That is an essential matter, I think, as a recommendation I'd like to put to the administration. Tell us what is it that you want and what are the parameters that you have regarding Iran's role in Syria, of course, which means it, 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 it is within the project of the Islamic Republic of Iran to go through Syria in order to connect with Hezbollah in Lebanon and therefore get to the Mediterranean and that means you know Israel and you know, across the border. So Syria is not the issue of Syria is not over yet. But the worry is that this administration will probably hopefully not repeat what the previous administration Obama administration has done, which is to deliberately turn a blind eye on Syria and really unfortunately they had looked away when the genocide was taking place
2: certainly don't think that
1: pulling out of Syria has made it any tougher for them. Um, I, I, you know, what, we're, what we're looking at in terms of that question is, is the formation of, kind of a virtual caliphate. We expect them to use the, the international disappointment in the U.S. over this They've always recruited, who are these kind of you know digital, um, digital uh, hostile people to their cause, and and claim that they have ownership over territories that is simply ideological. I think I think we haven't seen the last of them. I do think we're going to see a fracturing of them. I, I don't think we'll see is. I think we'll see offshoots, and I think we'll see less of a global message, and I think we're going to see more localized messages. kind of a and benefit for themselves, again, inspired by what had been the, the Islamic State. So that's where I think we're, we're going with that. I mean, regardless of who was elected in the U.S. next November, we're, we could potentially be facing further U.S. withdrawal of troops because of this avoidance of conflict um, feeling of, among the U.S. population right now. Even the Democrats are saying we shouldn't be places anymore. And it's kind of you know, based on people looking at the return on investment we have for years of lives and blood and treasure invested without and I think that would be used as a recruitment message by either Islamic state. Or Qaeda.
2: To I don't see a chance at that at all. Why? Uh, Iran is on a roll and a run. Uh, in reaching the Mediterranean, it has recovered what it lost uh, thousands of years ago. It was an East Mediterranean power. It contested or regained and uh, these to be understood uh, perhaps it's a facetious analogy but let's just say Mexico recovered arizona and New Mexico and southern california one way or another uh, there are maps in mexico city you can purchase uh, which show uh, these states back under uh, Mexican control there uh, so let's not be naive about Unlikely, uh, uh, to relinquish, and the Hezbollah connection has been mentioned. Uh, Hezbollah is uh, on the ropes or in the corner in uh, Beirut, and uh, Raqqidah will explain that in greater uh, depth. On the other hand, uh, Hezbollah can say, look, we helped the Assad regime uh, remain. Uh, we helped to consolidate his role. and simultaneously we Yemenis uh, to take the extra technology we have to help the Yemenis advance their spur missiles uh, that can be shot into Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. Um, and thirdly, with regard to the Russians, which have they gain two boards uh, since Peter the Great, Catherine the Great. significant there. Uh, The chances for uh, Russia gaining uh, along the southern Iranian littoral in the Gulf is greater than it has uh, been in a long time. On al-Qaeda, because the fight has been against ISIS, uh, al-Qaeda has been overlooked by some and strengthened in various ways, especially in Yemen, in the southeastern The Palestinian uh, problem is unresolved. And we look uh, uh, pathetic in terms of empathy, in terms of various humiliating insults, controversial, provocative, antagonistic steps that the administration has made. And this is food uh, for Al Qaeda. It, it does not help. Sanctions have not been ineffective. I
0: beg to differ. Sanctions have been extremely effective. The, the Iranian situation, internal situation, is really at a boiling point. That is why we hear more threats that they need to deal with the internal situation that is deteriorating due to sanctions. They, they are thinking the only way to deal with that is to have an outside engagement sympathy to, uh, uh, to the regime from the public, the Iranian public. So, you no know, sanctions are hurting badly. And um, it's a good policy that to continue with the sanctions. Do not think that it's time to ease up the sanctions, because that really would be a deal-making, again, a fix-it uh, approach like what just happened with the Turkey, you know, fix-it, uh, make an arrangement. Do not make arrangements. Stay the course, because the other option really is to bow to what the regime wants and then back to square one. Now, I know that some people will differ with me. They'll just say, no, you need to have a a mechanism to ease up in order to make sure that to open up the potential for dialogue. But remember, the message is not coming from Rouhani or Zarif, at least what we thought would be the moderates in Iran. The message is coming from the uh, revolutionary who are saying I am your address you need to do what I want you to do and that's uh, and, and then, then if, you, if you don't release me from some sanctions I'm going to hurt you badly I don't think it's time to pay back for blackmail to the contrary stay the course on sanctions is very important it's leading to uh, important uh, to, to, to detrimental actually positions uh, by hopefully yeah. I, wish, I wish the Iranian regime would just decide that it's time, and it's good for the Iranian people to take steps that would take to take steps that would, would really become a reform of the regime. That you know, after 40 years, what is why is it necessary to claim the right to have uh, parliamentary forces in other sovereign countries? It's time to just say no. This really didn't work. Let's back off. It's time to to adjust that. No one is saying Iran should be at war with us or we want to be at war with Iran. Take a look at the Gulf states. No one is really ready to go and and, and, and provoke a war with Iran. The party that wants to provoke military operations is the Revolutionary Guards of Iran, not the United States, not the Arab states. And that's why we need to to sit back and take a look at what should we be
2: doing about Again, I mean, um, uh, I want to put this in a larger context because this is not um, some outlier region. It's part of a larger thing. Uh, So this administration has chosen to take on two of the oldest civilizations on the planet at once, Iran, Persia, and China, basically. Well, that's one of the signature features of the Trump administration. They've decided to take on Persia and China at the same time. And, in effect, to use uh, sanctions against both of them, tariffs on. That is great at breaking things, but it has not actually proven its ability to actually. uh now that we have actually imposed these sanctions, I would be saying to about the Iranian government and as I uh, writer said that the revolutionary Guards, here's what we want. We just want two things. Them, uh, but then you'd have a very interesting fight inside the leadership. You'd have a really interesting fight. Because then to the extent that there are moderates and, and, and hardliners, um you would see a lot of as where I said where we're putting real pressure on them, right? But don't on the table right? okay. don't no, no, the on your side of the table. When you make it basically uh, an offer of lifting sanctions for regime change, then you force all the moderates to wave the nationalist flag. We're doing the exact same thing that the Chinese. Okay? We're forcing all the reformers inside China to rally to Xi Jinping because you're not putting an offer on the table that can actually entice enough people to fracture. So I, I, again, I, I think a much more sophisticated approach. They're great at creating administration, I think they're very maladroit and often stupid about having that pressure in a sophisticated way to actually build fissures inside both Beijing and Tehran. Just one line there, uh, Tom. I, I want to object to one thing,
0: to, to what you said. You said two things. You said, on the, the ban, on, on the, the, you spoke of the nuclear and ballistic, you did not even mention the, uh, the regional. That is really something that I would ask you to
2: put these conditions out there. Thank you. to continue for a breakthrough is necessary to preserve the hope for a two-state solution. Uh, We are now seeing the destruction of all the resolutions of the UN, two for two resolutions that were constructed. today, the axis today in the region is Egypt and Saudi Arabia. This is an axis that has sustained all the ups and downs of the of the turmoil of the uprisings of the turmoil of, of, of the new Trump administration and so on. So what we're seeing today is that the withdrawal of the U.S. troops, I thank God, So. Sure. Saudi system that um, uh, without radical reform uh, uh, in in the economic, uh, social, and religious spheres, uh, Saudi Arabia was going to fall off the planet. Um, it was heading in a, in a really dangerous direction. It was uh, its financial reserves were dwindling, um, and it had to find a way to uh, diversify its economy. The only way to it diversify its economy was diversify education. So that was the context that um, uh, I, I always felt that if MBS did exist, the system would have invented him, because it needed someone to take on this job. Um, uh, uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, I know a little too much about this story. Um, uh, so MBS had a huge upside, uh, incredible... ever would have done that. Uh, but the guy who had the same, uh, you know, um, steel uh, uh, to do that um, also had some really bad impulses. Uh, he was the same guy who would uh, basically detain the Prime Minister of Lebanon, uh, cut off relations with Qatar, and do um, uh, the things, uh, the, the bombing campaign in Yemen. So by my view of MBS, is he had a big upside. Um, and it, was to encourage the outside and discourage the downside. And we this administration, I and mean, it is this administration completely failed in this task. It didn't even have an ambassador in Riyadh um, uh, for its basically first two years. You know, all of these governments of the Middle East um, are combinations of moderates and extremists. You know, um uh, that's the Israeli cabinet, the Palestinian cabinet, the Saudi cabinet, and historically um, our role So that when they have a cabinet meeting and someone in Israel or the Arab world says, I'd like to do this really crazy thing. Uh, I'd like to annex the West Bank, or I've got an idea, let's murder uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Um, uh, The American president's role was always to be in the background where the king or the prime minister could say, I'd love to actually do that crazy thing that you're suggesting. But the American somebody did say it.
1: making at the top levels in Saudi Arabia. So we saw that event as a result of a fractured system of good ideas reaching MBS. And we wanted to see wise advisors and, and top council being put back in place and pushing out I'll name, people like Saad qatani from that decision-making circle. Saad qatani was a red line for this administration. Get him out of that. also said we need the new national security center to work. We love that Saudi Arabia looked around at, at models here and other places at national security councils and centers and such and said we'd like to implement one of these ourselves as we're seeing in other regional partners around the, around the world, or, or I'm sorry, around the region. National Security Center, please make it work. What can we do to help you make this work? You've got an administrative level, you've got ministers at the top. Where's the center? Where are your, where are your subject matter experts? You know, every country represented here needs a strategic relationship with Saudi Arabia. And when you when you're dealing with a country where leaders are in charge for 50 years, you don't have the luxury of, of saying we'll wait them out like you can with America. You can wait out with Reforms that are necessary to make sure that he, as a leader, makes good decisions and not ill-informed decisions.
2: Uh-huh. But just a, a quick follow-up, you know, um, because Saudi friends have asked me. So, what? What is Saudi Arabia doing now? Really, sure was your question? Your, and my, my first reaction is you cannot fix stupid. And when you do something as stupid as murdering Jamal Khashoggi, there is no fixing that stupid. There's only your way out of this problem to reduce, basically, the influence of that story, because you have done so many domestic uh, reforms. I think that's that's really going to be the the challenge for Saudi Arabia going forward. But the notion that this is just going to be forgotten, that's for a different era. social media in every single country. And weaponized social media uh, in Europe, uh, in America, will make his life very, very difficult for a long time. It's not going to go away. Weaponized social that have actually been an that that Saudis have benefited from, it, particularly when shifting. shifting. Let me ask you, because we're talking about uh, world leaders with a limited uh, arc, so what do we think is going to happen with Israel since Netanyahu doesn't seem to be able to get his government together? Will that is it, it, are the prospects Yes,
0: of the Golan Heights of the the transfer of uh, the capital to Jerusalem. All this has uh, made the Palestinians unable and unwilling to go to the negotiating table when they were very close to it. I believe that now there is a real chance Or to get Abou Mazen through the negotiating table without the help of Kushner or
2: MBS. The poor. <laughs> no. uh, back to the sorry. Back to the sorry state in Yemen. One there. Uh, despite. At the margins. I could be wrong on that, but I don't think so. There's 80 years of investment in this relationship on both sides. There are 500,000 Saudi Arabian graduates of American universities. No other country in the world has half that. Uh, and most of those are pro-American in the sense that the business. standards, weights, measures. Uh, They know English well. Uh, They have condominiums here. They vacation here. Uh, They urge their children, their nephews, their other relatives to come to school here. Uh, More than any other uh, Arab country, more than any other Islamic country, on the Arab and Islamic part, by default, Saudi Arabia has become the leader of the 22 Arab states. Iraq used to aspire to it. gone. Egypt used to aspire to it. Gone. Syria used to used to aspire to it. Gone. There's no one left but Saudi Arabia. So we're talking about 22 countries, Arab countries, 28 Middle Eastern countries that take Iran out of that because Iran is not led by Saudi Arabia. Of course, uh, actually, a am not that. But on the Islamic world, uh, nearly 2 million Muslims have to take Saudi Arabia seriously. Uh, what's in their lifetime. Now, in the Yemen uh, situation, uh, empathy is required here. I've been to Yemen 25 times with its former president Ali Abdullah only nine times here. Uh, there are these factors from Saudi Arabia's side, uh, Yemen has a, one of the longest borders of any two Arab countries in the region with Saudi Arabia. And from the Yemen side of the border, for the first time, not just human attacks, patrol attacks. It's good attacks that have been advanced in that technology out uh, there. Uh, just put yourself in the shoes of Mexico uh, or the United States vis-a-vis Mexico, or Mexico doing something similar. So Saudi Arabia has no choice, no options. When you have no choice, options, your decision-making is very easy. It will continue to be involved in Yemen. It's mistakes, yes. Messy, yes. Uh, Civilians, a tragic aspect of this. Uh, Secondly, uh, there's the concern that Yemen is a revolutionary political uh, nexus there. It toppled its monarchy. Third, it has had four revolutions: the late 40s and 1962 to 1970, uh, 1994, and this one. Uh, It survived all of the previous ones, and I believe it will endure this particular one. Yemeni population inside of Saudi Arabia. In Jeddah alone, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's just a minimum of a third of those who do the burdens and, and do the physically arduous labor, uh, the socially uh, undignified labor. Uh, these are heavily rooted and based on the Yemeni populations. Lastly, Yemen's population is uh, pushing 30 million. It's greater. three times over. Uh, So you cannot ignore, if you're a Saudi Arabia, uh, the Yemen factor in any of their regional uh, calculations. But I just want to ask a question because we're actually in the middle of an amazing uh, phenomenon.
0: to see uh, on American television and even in American papers coverage of what I witnessed in Beirut and I just can't find it. And what's happening is that for the first time in Lebanon, I I saw and I see the grandmothers and grandchildren and and, and they're walking together in the streets to say no to sectarianism anymore. In the past they had the fear The, the, guy, the, the guy who guided them because they are minorities. There was this bunch of minorities sitting there, each afraid uh, to, to say something and they bowed. And then the ruling class uh, became very greedy, extremely greedy, and they took Useless. no. The electricity deals, the expense, the water deals, the, distance, the, 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 the hospitals, the uh, education, they were getting nothing where the upper ruling class, uh, political class, was pocketing, literally pocketing, uh, uh, and not re- and implementing any reforms needed so that Lebanon can financially survive. So when the people went out on the streets, I want to tell you to take a look at what, at what happened in Tripoli. Tripoli is the place where allegedly it's the extremists the Sunni extremists are there all the time. Well, hundreds of thousands were out there. For the six days, this is the seventh day, I think, that they're going to go back to the street. The same thing in the in, in, in Bati'i entire. These people said, for uh, the leader of the Hezbollah, no, you won't finger at us and us that you decide when to bring down a government or you decide that when a, a, a revolution is possible or a, or, or a manifestation of the state is allowed. And the Shiites the of Lebanon dare say to both Rasulullah and the people, their leaders, no you won't And they said to Hariri, the Prime Minister, What do you mean you come with your alleged reforms? And the Taker looked at them. They, they, they were really laughable. And they said, You know, he said to them, These reforms are revolutionary. But they read them well and they said, Back at you and back to you. And they went back on the streets again. My point here is that there is a real awakening in Lebanon, which is really because it's saying to those um, you know, guys who assume that they can run the country without the acquiescence of the people, the very educated people like that, that they said no. They said they will not, we will not fear you anymore. We will not be sectarian anymore. I saw, I mean, I was down in, 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 in the, one of the Zahad uh, Shohada, I was down there, I found myself hugging and kissing women who were covered. Uh, and we just like the women, by the way, a lot of people spoke of the beautiful women of Beirut, of Lebanon, uh, and the sent demonstrations in the way the Egyptians were making jokes about that. And uh, we, we found some of them rather offensive. Because it was not only about the pretty women of Lebanon demonstrating, it was women of Lebanon, all of them, old, young, covered, not covered, together saying no not bow anymore. So please pay attention to Lebanon. We need you to, to go to the social media everywhere because, you know, the television and, and thank you, Tom, all for, for allowing me to bring this up. But go follow what's going on. Support it because it is something beautiful, another beautiful thing happening in that region
2: after what happened in the Sudan. Thank you. Um, as we head into world. Sorry. In Iraq, it would be the U.S. administration's
1: dream to be able to limit Iranian influence, obviously. And, um, but unfortunately, a lot of – since they refuse to engage with quite a bit of the government, not with President Salah, that's fine. But with other, other parts of the government, they see more as Iran know, If you're not going to discuss things, then it makes it hard to get past them. But there, there's definitely a lot of thinking going on about um, ways to, to limit Iran's influence there. Assistance to Iraq, because of the fact that the Iranian-backed militias, while they are under the guidance of the Ministry of Defense in Iraq, still receive a lot of direction. Many of them from, um, from from Soleimani and others in Iraq. you know, if you are backed then and you're looking at, at who you should side with, the fact that the U.S. administration is asking you to make a binary decision on them makes it difficult then to, to have those discussions. Um, there are But, you know, there there needs to be a recognition that Iraq is a country in the region with a relationship with the neighbor in Iran, and that that there are places where both countries could probably have an influence that might not necessarily be to the detriment of the other. Um, I think there's – I don't know if we'll see that in this administration, but I think I would welcome uh, smart writers and other think tankers
2: to be looking at this, because I think there are options we just need to nail down with.
1: President Donald Trump would love to sit down with Iran, but as we've seen with other such summits, they don't often come to anything. I think it's in Iran's interest right now. The way the way I, from speaking to folks who talk to them, perceive their perception of their own interests is that they think that keeping this low boiled tit for tat escalation going is their is their comfort zone, they their happy place, at least through the election. There's no incentive in their opinion for them to come to the table with the president. If you are Rouhani and you come to the table and the, Something comes to nothing, you look even weaker, you strengthen the hardliners. And um, unless we get the Supreme Leader to come to the table with the President, which would really be the decision maker with the decision maker, then we won't get anywhere. And I don't think a Supreme Leader believes that there's any incentive for him to sit down.
0: And I think that what is happening today is a crisis of identity politics. And this is what is very important.
1: perspective about the little bumps and obstacles we're seeing and about perceptions of a U.S. lack of commitment, that nothing is forever. We've been through tough spots before. We'll get through this one. And uh, the relationship between the U.S., the West in general, and the region is, is too meaningful, too powerful, and too longstanding to give up on. Right. I will add to what both Mona
0: and distance said. I, I although I'm not as worried as you are. I am worried, but I think for now I I want to look at the positive development that is the people coming together. Uh, But yes, uh, definitely we need to know what is the U.S. policy and particularly that you have right now a a call for the the resignation of the government, which means not only the prime minister and uh, his his, uh, ministers, but also So uh, that, that ruling right now that's taking place is really the, the, the strong men are uh, the president, who is not very awake, but his, his uh, son-in-law, who is the foreign minister, is very much running even uh, the, the, the government doesn't goes now. So I think there has to be pressure for the resignation and reform for, uh, for forming a new direction, whatever it costs, because a new identity is being it's going to be post sectarian
2: with everybody's head. Thank you. I'm sorry, I thought you were talking about Washington for a minute, but I guess you were talking about that. <laughs> and I, and I, uh, very interesting parallels, Tom. Well, when I began, I said I believe in amplification, um, not that, that containment, not enlargement, but amplification should be the centerpiece of American foreign policy today. And that means amplifying the, the, the most decent and, and the most progressive uh, initiatives that come out of and I think the two most important documents to come out of, uh, of the Arab world uh, since the uh, 21st century began, uh, is actually before the 20th century of is the Taif Agreement. Because the, the core idea of Taif was politics can only be uh, sustained if we approach it with the principle of no victor, no vanquished, and the minority has to be overrepresented. Uh, it is the formula for power sharing for the entire region, and the second most important document, by Arab social scientists, was the Arab Human Development Report in 2003, which said this region has three deficits, a deficit of education, a deficit of women's empowerment, and a deficit of freedom. And we, America, should be looking to amplify both of those uh, uh, concepts that emerge from the region. I think that's the necessary, if not sufficient way. thank you. There are so many good questions in here, but like every conversation about the Middle East, you could go on for a long time, which is why I'm glad the conference runs more than a day. So uh, again, thank you very much, and